In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts, who are, and you guessed it, in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Diana Wood from Bernstein's Boston office, and this episode features our U.S. semiconductor analyst, Stacey Raskin. The podcast starts with a general discussion of AI technology and the implications for the semiconductor industry. Then, in the second half of the pod, we geek out a little with Stacy about the theory and math underpinning AI. Hi, Stacy. Welcome. Hi. Good to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. So we wanted to have a chat today on artificial intelligence, AI. I mean, the topic du jour across so much in tech. And really across everything, I have to tell you, I have one of my good friends from college was visiting from the West Coast. I just saw her, and she produces movies out there. And we were talking about a number of things, and we were talking about AI in general. I'm like, Anna, does this really impact you? Like, how do you think about it? I feel like this isn't that big of a deal for creative folks. And she's like, listen, someone had ChatGPT write, essentially, a sample episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Larry David and other writers looked at it, and they're like, this is good. You know, there's some stuff here. So I feel like this is just front and center of everything. Stacey, in your words, can you help break this down? What is AI? When did it first come about? What is the inflection point that brings us here today? Yeah, you bet. So AI as a concept is not new. It's been around since probably the 60s, I think, where people have been playing with ways to get computers to think or at least appear to think. And the industry went through a number of what they call AI winters, where people would get really excited and work would be done, and then interest would kind of peter off. And it went through several of these over history. The reason mostly was down to the data sets that they were using to train these models were small at the time, and the computing power was really there. So it was really more a matter of scale, I think, than anything else. It's just the capabilities. It turns out to do this stuff, it is very, very computationally intensive. You need a lot of data to train these things to do what they need to do. And it just wasn't ready to go. And it was kind of like that probably until the early to mid 2000s. There was some an inflection, but this is when I guess number one, the data sets started to get much bigger. And you had a shift in the type of computing hardware that was used to do this. And, and this was when the, the GPU or graphics processing unit really started to come in into the, the limelight. As it turns out, the math that these graphics processors, most of your listeners may be more familiar with using these um, for gaming, but it turns out that the type of math that is done to do like graphics rendering is very, actually very similar. We could go more deep in the math if you want, but the type of math is very similar to what's done within these neural the machine. The artificial intelligence has done some using something called a neural network and the math that's done on these neural networks tends to be very similar to the math that's used on graphics processing. And so it was around 2005, 2006, 2007, that kind of time frame. graphics cards or GPUs started to be used in conjunction with much larger data sets. And that kind of really set things going. I think Google started to deploy this for, you know, like language recognition, things like that, I think into 2012. And, and we were sort of off to the races. And over the years since then, we've been finding more and more use cases for artificial intelligence. There are actually now finally real business cases, use cases actually go out and deploy this stuff. I think hopefully, <laughs> well, I, I actually do think we are past the point of seeing more winters in, in this. I mean, it can certainly be volatile, but there are real use cases worth potentially like many billions of dollars that are now looking quite real and people are actually now deploying for this. 
And you've had one name in particular under your coverage that was a massive kind of upside surprise. But how do you break this down in the context of semis and sifting through the semis companies? So without giving any investment conclusions, I can talk factually about these companies. Okay. So NVIDIA is clearly, look, they're the ones that have the dominant position in GPUs and graphics chips for data center for these types of applications. We haven't talked about this yet, but they've also developed not just the hardware, but a massive software mode. Not just enough in semis, by the way, as you find, and not just in this in general, software can be just as important as hardware. And many semi companies have more software engineers than hardware engineers. Although I would also, as an aside, I would say most semi companies are not effective at monetizing that software. They just kind of give it away. It's like table stakes. But it's actually very important. Like none of these chips run by themselves. So NVIDIA over like the last 15 years has also developed not just the hardware, but also this massive software mode. It's called CUDA is what they call it. It's like their programming environment for these types of GPUs. And they've layered on tons of application-specific libraries and things on top of that. Anybody else that is trying to do well in this market for AI compute has to develop software of their own. And, and they're all, I mean, they're all much farther behind and now they're competing against an ecosystem that is entrenched, which is always tough. But NVIDIA, you know, has the lion's share of this stuff. And I mean, they, they reported earnings, uh, you know, a month or two back. And you're, you're right, it was a very, very large upside surprise. I mean, they, they beat, I can't even remember how, how much they beat by, but the, the number, like I had to look at it twice. Like it didn't quite register in my brain when I saw the guidance, it was pretty strong. And it's all data center. Yeah, it's insane. They did $4.3 billion in data center last quarter, and they're effectively guiding for, you know, $8 billion or more this quarter. So it's almost doubling sequentially. It gets to your, your earlier point on, on compute shortages that we talk about in a minute, maybe. Yeah. But they're, they're clearly benefiting. It's actually not that many wafers. It, it's, it's sort of funny. Like, in, you know, NVIDIA, like I said, they're, they're guiding for incremental data center revenue about $4 billion. I know how big these chips are. And so you can sort of like back of the envelope, figure out how many additional like wafers, like they order, they have this, all this stuff made at TSMC. And for the listeners that don't, aren't familiar, a lot of companies, semi-companies just design chips and they outsource the manufacturing to companies like TSMC in, in Taiwan. And, and, and they do it on, these chips are made on these big 300 millimeter silicon wafers. You can calculate how many wafers it must be for that incremental revenue. It, it's like 1500 wafers a month. It's, it's nothing. TSMC has over a million wafers a month of installed capacity, right? It's a round error. So I don't, I don't know that it helps semi-cap or anything like that in the near term. Although in the long term, you could argue it should drive, you know, much more, maybe maybe more like leading edge um, uh, semiconductor wafer down. So maybe in the long term, it's fine. So stepping back just a little bit, because then I want to get into the competitive landscape, but one of our marquee conference that we had, you recently did a panel with the two other Marks. It's, I almost wanted to call you Stacy Mark. But anyway, <laughs> Mark Raskin. So you guys were kind of not duking it out, but somewhat duking it out about who's the winners and the disruptors. So Mark Mordler, who covers software for us, and Mark Schmuluk, who covers internet, we're kind of duking it out because you have this whole question of Google versus Microsoft. From the semi stamp, I don't actually care, right? They're selling the pickaxes, like like who cares who wins? And frankly, you could argue the opportunity is is large. Like there's there's room for more than one player, and they're they're doing different things. And you could have the two marks on this podcast probably to duke it out if you want. <laughs> On the semi side, like it, it's Nvidia clearly, and then you could start to argue maybe there are others that that can play. And then again, I, I don't want to talk about investment conclusions, but some of the controversies for NVIDIA are how sustainable is that moat? Yeah. As this grows, will they continue to get the lion's share? Will they cede some either to other players who are making GPUs or or like to the guys that are doing their own chips? So these are the kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Although I would say like, at least for now, the opportunity seems large enough where it, it, th- those threats are there. They've always been there. It's not new. Like Google's been making their own AI chips for eight years. It's not new. 
clearly hasn't slowed anything down, right? The, in my opinion, is like the market is is large. Yeah. And as long as that's still the case, like there's probably room for lots of players to benefit. And people need to remember large language models and things like that have been around for a while. ChatGPT has only been here since November. We're very early on, on, on this. And I would say ChatGPT is the first time that the typical like person on the street had the, the opportunity to reach out and touch this and play with it, realize that there's something there. And we're now actually starting to see like impact on real businesses. We're seeing companies like Adobe, you know, who've actually developed like things like, like generative fill, like where, where it's pretty amazing what you can do on the graphics design with this. And we're starting to see companies talk about, I think IBM talked about they're going to reduce hiring for jobs that they think can be fulfilled with AI. Like there are real like use cases to actually deploy this stuff now. So I remember my husband's in tech, he's in software. I remember when ChatGPT first came out and he was showing, I mean, obviously you guys have been talking about it for a while and he had it write me a song, I think. And I was like, okay, this is great. Here we go. And then I was talking to one of our analysts and she was telling that she is helping her daughter who's applying to different schools in London. And she was talking about a bio and she said, you need to write a bio. And she said, for an example, try to write mine. And so her daughter used ChatGPT which probably was not the point of the assignment, but she gets a point, you know, for resourcefulness that she went after this. And the bio that was created was totally wrong. I mean, it was just pulling what was from the internet. People get worried, you know, they get dystopian about this stuff. These things are not intelligent. It's not thinking, it's not sentient, it's predictive text. That's all it's doing. We can talk about ChatGPT. The, the model structure that I talked about before is slightly different for Chat. It uses something called a transformer model that maybe we don't need to get into, but... It's predicting text based on the input, based on the relationships between the text that are in its training data set. So it kind of knows when I see this word or this group of words, it's these other words that tend to follow it. That is all it's doing. It has no concept of right or wrong. It has no concept of true or false. It does not know. It will happily make stuff up. It's called hallucinating. That's what they refer to it in this context. And so you have to be really, really careful like if you're using it to write a song or a poem, like fine. But if you're actually using it to do research, you need to be really careful. Now, you, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a recent case where a lawyer apparently had used it to write a brief and submitted it. And it cited cases that do not exist. This is one problem with it right now is you, you can have it do stuff and you got to spend a bunch of time like going through it to make sure that what it's saying is correct because it will happily make stuff up. It has no concept of true or false. It doesn't know. It's just predicting text. As we look ahead in the future, where the leaps and bounds we've come from since 2005 and 2006 to now, and what could be anticipated, which is in the future, I was listening to another podcast, I think it was WorldCoin, where they talk about iris recognition for your identification in the future. I feel like we're in Minority Report, which scares me. I love humans. I called to get reservations or bbd bob whatever, and I'm like, I would like to speak with a person. I don't care where they are. Give me a human. I feel like I could do that. I could retire and just volunteer helping out people with calls. Is it just becoming smarter? It's becoming more effective. Again, smarter, maybe it's not quite the right word. They're not smart, but it's becoming more effective and more usable. Like for something like a call center, you already have these. There are already chatbots that, that do this, but these are going to become much more effective over time. Yeah. So five years or 10 years when you call up your call center, it may not be a person anymore. Even today, it might not be, but in 10 years, Almost for surely, it, it, it probably won't be. Like graphics design and things like that. So we've just been talking about text-to-text -text for a little bit, but there's text-to-video now, image-to-video. Like you can put an image in and it can change it. I mean, you can imagine a scenario and people be talking. I, I don't know about this, by the way, you know, because I, I don't know if it fits with human nature, but people have talked about like, 
you won't go to the movies anymore. You'll just type in, I want to see a movie about, you know, a, a crime drama starring Bill Murray, and it could just generate it for you. I don't know. I mean, part of the whole point of like a movie is a shared experience, I think, but the capability is getting there. I don't know if you've played with a mid journey, which is like an, an image generator. It's phenomenal what it can do. There's already like, again, it's, it's not high quality, but there's like video like generated from prompts. They have that as well. And by the way, that's good. That stuff's going to be even more compute intensive. Which goes back to the companies in this landscape and the competitive landscape. And so how do you see it growing from here? Like, how do you size this? We've dug through, at least for ChatGPT, we've tried to size this. We've actually dug through the, the model, the structure of the model itself and actually counted up the, the compute that was required to both train these models as well as do the queries. And, and by the way, these, these things, they, they think in something called a token. You can sort of think of a token as a word. It's not exactly a word, but think about it as that. For, but for a typical sort of like 500 word response, okay, something like 400 quadrillion compute operations. And for these GPUs, I know how many operations per second they can run at, and I kind of know what they sell for, and you can make some other assumptions. You can sort of come up with a market and... These numbers can get very, very, just, just assume how many, how many queries are you going to run in a day? I mean, like, so is, is it a hundred million? Is it a billion? Is it 10 billion? Just for to levels that Google does about 10 billion search queries a day. But these numbers can get very, very large, very, very quick. I think easily in the tens of billions of dollars, if, if not bigger, like depending on how this goes. So I actually kind of want to geek out a little bit. Can you talk about the math a little more and within neural networks, like talk about how the math actually works and kind of dig in a little there. I'll try to simplify a little bit, but um, it turns out to be a lot of what, what's called matrix manipulation, matrix multiplication, matrix addition. But the, And a matrix, by the way, is, is think of it just like a big array of numbers. Like a, you could be a square or a rectangle, like a grid of, of just numbers. And these matrices, these matrices can, be, can get very, very large. Now you can do things with these. You, you can add them together. You can multiply them. The multiplication doesn't work quite the same as just multiplying a couple of numbers together but it can be done. That's the effect of the, the type of math that's done. Now, now the, the way that these neural networks are represented, if I were there, I could draw a picture, it'd be a little easier, but um, you can think of a bunch of circles, like columns of circles, like connected by lines. So you, you can imagine, you know, I've got like a column of you know, three or four circles and a column next to it with, you know, three or four circles and, and, a, and a column next to that with, you know, three or four circles. And you can draw lines from each circle in one column to all the circles in the next. And if you think about what that would look like, that like it looks like a net, that that's a neural network. Um, each of those circles is what's called a neuron or an artificial neuron. And those arrows are those lines that I've used to connect those circles together. Those are inputs and outputs. So each circle has inputs coming in from every circle in the column that preceded it. And they've got outputs that are going out to all the circles like in, in the column that succeeds it. And what each of these neurons done, it just adds up those inputs um, that are coming in each circle. And if those inputs cross a threshold, if those inputs add up to something higher than the threshold, then that circle will give an output to the next column. By the way, these columns and circles are called layers. So it'll give an output to the next layer. Now, when you have a neural network, it has a lot of parameters. Now, before I get to this, let, let, me, let me abstract a little more about what we're doing. I'm going to give you like a, a little more like higher level example before I dive into the math. Let's say I have a neural network, and I've used this example before, but let's say I, I want to train a neural network to recognize pictures of cats. So let's imagine I've got a box, got a slot in one side where I can feed in pictures of something, like whatever I want, and it's got a little output on the other side, and it says yes or no. Yes, it's a cat, or no, it's not. And on the side of the box, there are a billion knobs. And so what I'm going to do is, at first I need to, what's called train this network. So I'm going to take pictures that, that I, I know, I know it is, is it a cat or is it not? This is like tagged known data and I'm going to feed it into the network. 
and it's going to tell me, yes, it's a cat or no, it's not. It's probably going to get it wrong at first. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn all of these knobs. Those are my parameters. And basically I'm going to, and every time I turn it, it changes something in the box. And again, for my purposes right now, I don't care what that something is. It's a black box and I've got knobs on the side that can change how it behaves. So I'm going to feed in pictures of cats and I'm going to turn these knobs until the um, accuracy of the network gets better. It gets better at recognizing pictures of cats. And what I'm trying to do is I'm sort of trying to minimize that I want it to be accurate. So I, I want the difference between my actual known data and my output to be small, right? I want it to, yes, it's a cat or no, it's not, it recognizes it. This process of changing these parameters to get the network to do what I want it to do, that's known as training. It's very, very, very computationally intensive. But once, let's say I do this for a while and I'm turning my knobs and, and, and now I've got this thing where it's, it's recognizing cats like almost 100% of the time. So now the network is trained. Now I lock all the knobs down. I don't turn them anymore. Now I just feed in pictures and it tells me, yes, it's a cat or no, it's not. That process that where I'm using the network is called inference. It is much less computationally intensive because I'm not changing any of those parameters. Although like I train it once and I'm done, I could be using it for inference, you know, forever, right? So the inference piece scales out a lot because I could I could have a lot of use for this. But the training on, on any individual action, the training is much more computationally intensive. Now, when I say a billion knobs, I'm not kidding. Like these models can have billions and billions of parameters potentially. In fact, ChatGPT that you mentioned has 175 billion parameters. So let me get back to my earlier discussion now. Now I'm going to tell you what those parameters are. So I remember I said I have these like these layers or columns of circles with inputs and outputs and each circle is taking the inputs that are coming in. Each of those inputs has a number associated with it. They're adding them up and they're saying, does it cross a threshold? And if it's above a, th a certain threshold, then it sends an output. But if it's not, then it doesn't. So each of these circles may have multiple inputs coming in. It does not have to treat them all the same. It can weight them differently. So it may say, I've got three inputs coming in and I'm going to weight the first input by 0.5 and the second by 0.3 and the third by 0.2 or what, whatever, right? And so that's one set of those, that's the bulk of those parameters I was talking about is the weights of those inputs and outputs. The second set of parameters is that threshold, like in each neuron, that's called the bias, actually. You could have a really sensitive neuron with a really low threshold. So it doesn't take a lot of input coming in to, to make it fire, to make it send an output. You could have a, a neuron that's less sensitive. I need a lot of, of input. I need it to sum to a higher number before it would send out a, a, an output. So that those biases are a number, another parameter. So those are your parameters that I'm setting. It's, it's the weights and bias of the network. The structure of the network, how many layers I have and how many neurons or circles are in each layer and how many inputs and outputs, that's sort of fixed. And I'm trying to determine the weights that go with that network. So that training process is this, finds those proper values of those weights to get the network to do what it does. The process that it does that when you're training, it's a process known as back propagation. <laughs> But what it does is you, you, you run stuff through the network and then you actually run it backwards through the network and you calculate what's called the gradient. Basically, it, it tells you how much should I change each parameter by is what this does. Again, we don't have to go too deep into it. but And you run stuff back and forth through this network like a whole bunch of times, changing the parameters a little bit each time until you can kind of get it to the desired level of accuracy. And again, it's very compute intensive. But when you actually write the math down, you get to back to my, my first thing on matrices. It, it turns out to be big arrays of numbers that you're manipulating. And that type of math, to go back to the very first thing I said, is very similar to what's done with graphics processing, which is why GPUs have, over the years have been used for this. Which leads us to how could we understand anything about AI without the use with this computing power of the chips and semiconductors? 
it is really dependent because it, like I said, it requires a, a ton of computing power. And this was one of the, the earlier issues is they didn't actually know. It was like, you know, are, are we structuring these networks? Because they, they were trying to train these things and it wasn't working that well. And like they, they were finding that you know, with these, in the neural networks, the layers in, in the middle are called the hidden layers. And they were finding that like they, they weren't getting trained, like they wasn't, the parameters weren't changing. And they didn't know why. Was was it a question of, of the structure of the network? Or was it something that just really turns out they, they didn't have enough data? Mm-hmm. And the computing power that they had was was not enough. And so that took time to develop into the point where it was actually usable. We're well past that point now. That was, like I said, around, you know, um, 2005, 6, 2007, that kind of time frame when that shift happened. It's not just in semis either. Like everybody has to have an AI story. Now, people are having fun. They're like counting the number of times that various types of companies say the word AI like on their conference calls. Like it, it, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And it's you just have to sort of sift through the noise, I feel. So let's talk a little about training these models. Training as well. I personally think the inference side for large language models is bigger than training. And the reason is even though training is much more compute intensive, like you train it and then you're done. Whereas the inference scales directly, the more queries I have, the more inference. And by the way, even if I have to retrain, I've already got the infrastructure in place. Training is more a function of, you know, how many entities are building these models and how many models of art they're building. And how often are they training those models and how big are the models getting? And that, that latter one is an important one. The models are getting bigger and bigger. And so training can be big. Don't get me wrong. As more models get deployed and as the models themselves get bigger, I personally think the inference opportunity is larger, but I, I think it's very, very large. Another way um, to think about this, and, and Jensen Huang, who's NVIDIA's CEO, has thrown out some numbers. So he's talked about a, a total available market for data center hardware and software for NVIDIA of $300 billion, which seemed nuts at the time, although I'd say it's seeming a little less and less nuts every day. The other thing he said was that you've got, um, and, and this actually goes beyond uh, uh, AI, and, and this goes to the concept of what's called accelerated computing. We've just got compute growing massively, and a lot of the drivers historically that enabled that growth to happen efficiently, things like Moore's Law. Every two years I was getting products that, you know, twice as good for half the price, right? And you had a big shift from mainframe data centers to x86 um, off the shelf like standard stuff and you had virtualization where you're increasing the utilization of those compute assets and you had the move to the cloud and all these things to increase efficiency they're all done you have to do something else i think that something else is accelerated computing you're taking workloads from your cpus in the data center cpus are central processing and it's like the general compute chips that companies like intel and amd sell you're offloading workloads from those chips onto other types of silicon like gpus and you're getting you know orders of magnitude increase in efficiency and Jensen's point was that there's a trillion dollars of installed data center infrastructure that's out there today that's not accelerated that he believes over time needs to become accelerated. And it may be very well because, again, compute is installed compute capacity in data centers was growing 50% a year pretty much forever. And historically, the drivers, those efficiency drivers that enable that to happen without having spending exploding are done. And I actually do think this accelerated compute paradigm is what needs to happen and what is starting to happen now. We're, again, we're still very, very early on that. But you can start to think about the opportunities in, in terms of those kinds of concepts. It's not hard to believe that the numbers can get big. And again, can I give you an exact answer? No, but I actually don't care. I just want to have confidence. Is it big relative to where we're running today? I, I think the answer is yes. Okay, so this is a silly question, but who has these data centers? Walk me through. This sounds like the next big thing. So they're, they're getting built now, right? And again, you have to build these things differently. They're much denser. They got a lot more compute per, I don't know, cubic foot or whatever, however you want to define it. The networking and everything is much different. So they're building, and, and there's a shortage of these compute items, right? Um, 
that sort of gets again, you go back to NVIDIA's, you know, data center outlook. There's a pretty significant step up, at least for now, because these companies don't have enough of these GPUs. And so they need to buy them and NVIDIA needs to make them or have them made. So that's starting to happen now. Now you're seeing deployments, I, I think, widespread. You're seeing, you know, enterprise, you're seeing a lot of startups. I think just given the dollar amounts that we're seeing right now, the most of the dollar spending has to be happening from the hyperscalers. Just they're the only ones that have that scale right now. But over time, you may see wide deployment. You'll you'll see a lot of this in the cloud. You'll see some on-premise. We'll see what the startups do. But yeah, but I mean, this, this stuff is getting built today. And it's, it's starting now. This has been so wonderful, Stacey. I'm happy to do this again, by the way. I know we don't, we don't have hours and hours to talk today, but I mean, there's they're, they're such a rich field. Like we could literally talk for hours on this. So I'm happy to come back. I would love you to. I could literally talk for hours with you. But I won't take any more of your precious time. I know you're coming back from vacation, actually still on vacation. This is vacation for me, though. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for joining us today. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In the Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at BernsteinResearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.